0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of LambdaCast. My name is David. I'm a Polygot programmer who, after years of disappointment in the languages I was using, discovered functional programming and never left. I focus on game development and teaching and using FP concepts wherever I can. I make money by writing line of business web and desktop applications. And I'm joined by my co-host. This week, we have a special co-host, Claudia Dopioslash.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: Claudia is a functional programmer and game dev. Having learned many languages, she ended up preferring strongly typed functional languages, though she's still a moderately smug Lisp weenie. And also Aaron Johnson.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm uh, also joined today by my son for just a few minutes. Uh, so if you hear some background noise, that's what that is.
0: That's a future functional programmer in training. Yeah, he's, we, he's, we a, him young.
2: he's one, but he's getting there.
0: And Aaron is an independent freelance developer currently working with Focus on.net. His primary experience with functional programming is through this podcast. So his primary benefit to the podcast is making sure we cover topics so that a true novice can understand. So if we're not asking the right questions, it's Aaron's fault. It's basically how that works out. And finally, we're joined by Logan Barnett. Hello. And Logan is a UI engineer presently working in JavaScript with tools such as Angular and React. He uses a lot of functional concepts in his day-to-day work, as well as ML-inspired tools such as Ramda and Flow. Logan also has a background in back-end development and game development. Alrighty. Uh, So this is pretty exciting. We have some new uh, people on the cast, which I'm very happy about. So thank you, Claudia, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And always, we love hearing from our community. So if you want to get a hold of us, you can send us an email, contact at lambdacast.com. You can hit us up on Twitter. We're at lambdacast. You can join us at the fpchat.com Slack community, where we have a LambdaCast channel. And if you feel that we're doing a particularly good job and you want to support us, you can go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash LambdaCast, and you can support us there. And we actually have some supporters that we'd like to thank this episode. So Javier Traconis, Andrew Newman, Derek Moore, and Olav Johansson have all pledged to support the cast. We very much appreciate that. Thank you very much. We've also gotten some some contact here, some emails. So we'll go through this here. And uh, the first one we have is from Chris Lopez. He He's asking, um, he says, I'm curious on your thoughts on Rich Hickey's Simple Made Easy Talk. Um, lots of people rave about it, but he doesn't seem to think highly about types. And then he kind of gives some quotes quotes about that. And, you know, he he says some things like, uh, you know, when, when people see you need a sophisticated type system, uh, you know, you don't actually need that. And, you know, we can get by with sort of uh, informal reasoning and, and stuff like that. Um, so what do, what do we think about that? Uh, I know so, some of us have seen the Simple Made Easy talk or have at least heard about it. it I definitely suggest it to people, even knowing that this objection is going to come up at the end, that he kind of poo poos on Static-type systems? Because he's, he's coming from the closure world, right? So from the Lisp world. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that?
3: Um, I would say, uh, does he specifically mean like an ML-style type system or more like Java or C-sharps?
0: That is a good point. I, I think that's actually a really good point. That He talks about, uh, when he says a fancy-type system, you might say, well, he's talking about Java or something like that. Uh, he did come out of the Java and .NET worlds, so that's certainly his background. But I know from, from side things that he is aware of Haskell and a lot of the concepts in Haskell. He certainly is not – he's no dummy. Like, he, he knows what's going on there. He just chooses to stay in a dynamic kind of a, a setting. So I don't think he's poo-pooing Haskell so much as he is poo-pooing, like, a Java or a .NET type system, which we've poo-pooed on here, right? You know, it's, it's yeah. kind of this halfway measure where – Kind of gives you guarantees, but then not enough so that you have a false sense of security and then it kind of bites you. So, it, that you know, if I recall, that talk was given at a
3: RubyConf. Is that correct? Or as a RailsConf, something like that? And if, if it is, I mean, the audience probably wouldn't know very much about the Haskells, especially back in what was it, 2009 when it was recorded?
0: So, it was in 2011 and it was at Strange Loop. Strange yeah. Loop does have a tendency to cater to things like Haskell.
3: Like that shoots down my fact. idea.
0: Yeah. So there, there's definitely a little more emphasis on Haskell than on Java. strangely. strange. So perhaps he was talking about that. Either way, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, this kind of comes down to opinion. And, and that's one of the reasons we want to give this talk today. We, we also have a, a follow-up question from Chris, which is the motivation for this entire episode's topic. Um, I think there is some opinion, and we'll get into that. I, I can tell you from my personal experience, I value the compiler doing as much work as possible. And there's no way to get that in a dynamic type system that that he's kind of advocating for, sort of the informal reasoning kind of approach. I do think that if you go that route, you need to fully go that route. And if you look at what he's done with Clojure, they've built very complex systems out of a few data types, they have a very small number of data types, and they have a lot of things that work with them. So it's sort of the, um, you know, if you could choose between having 100 data types, each with one function, or one data type with 100 functions that operate on it, you choose the latter over the former. I don't know if you've heard that quote. I think I'm butchering the quote, but it's something to that effect. Yeah. Um, th- that's kind of the list philosophy, right? Is uh, there's a couple things. There's like vectors and lists and dictionaries and maybe sets, and that's it. And we do everything with it. In, in many senses, that's very much like JavaScript, right? You have just like mm-hmm. objects and arrays, and maybe maps if you're using like ES6 type stuff, and you do everything with those. And so you have a lot of functions that just work with all with those few data types. That's pretty cool. Um, I, I certainly don't think there's any harm in that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I also want my compiler to say, like, hey, you forgot to do the thing here. Like that, There's no possible way that would work. And you're not going to get that in a dynamic type system. So we, we may just have different opinions on what is reasonable or expected from our language. Um, the next question is from Daniel Wetterbro. He is uh, basically writing in to link us to a talk by Philip Wadler, uh, who, by the way, you should just listen to every talk that Philip Wadler gives. He's amazing. And he's talking about the relationship between the product and some types and how there's sort of a, a deep fundamental um, connection there between them that they're they're very highly related. And uh, he gives a link to that talk, which we will link to in the show notes for this episode. And then he also I wanted to bring up that we didn't mention guards, which were um, when we were talking about pattern matching, um, there's a way to pattern match with a conditional attached, and that he thought that might have been what you were referring to, Logan. When you're talking about pattern matching with an extra conditional. So those are called guards. Okay. And uh, let's see, Jethro Larson uh, wrote in t- to uh, point out that we had not mentioned that uh, structures such as um, monoids and, and semigroups can automatically be monoids and semigroups if their internal value is also a monoid or semigroup. So there's a lot of structures where you can get sort of certain behavior for free if they contain something that has that structure. Like they can take advantage of their, whatever they're mm. parameterized by, if that thing has this type, you know, it's a, a monoid or semigroup, then you yourself can be a monoid or semigroup with, with effectively no extra work. How does that work? Um, so the outer structure can delegate to the internal structure to make it happen. So for example, if you have like a maybe type, maybe mm-hmm. can be a monoid or semigroup by saying it, it, in the cases where it's internal thing is a semigroup, you can have two maybes and they know how to combine their values if you have two justs, they just say, hey, whatever's inside me, do whatever its append thing is. But you have to reach in and
3: operate on the stuff on the inside.
0: Yes. The outer thing still has to have structure, but it doesn't have to do anything special. It's completely delegating to the append of its mm, contained okay. type. So it's, not, it's just saying, hey, grab, extract the value out of me, extract the value of the other one, append them together, and wrap them back up in a just in the example of maybe. So you basically, you didn't have to figure out the rules of what it means to append to maybes. You just have to figure out the rules of what it means to tell the contents of the maybes to append themselves and then put them back inside the maybe, if that makes sense. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: So sort of a, I I guess free is too strong a word. You can get them very cheaply. Um, And and so in things like Haskell, it's actually possible to write type signatures that say um, maybe is a monoid in the case where it's a is a monoid. So you can have a maybe of type, you know, foo that's not a monoid, in which case you just have a maybe of foo. But you can have another monoid where it's a, a maybe of type list. And if list is a monoid, then maybe of type list is a monoid. So it's sort of an implementation that only works when the thing that you're parameterized by has this property. You know, it's a monoid or semigroup or something like that. Got it. Because you're just relying on its behavior to get your, your work done. Right. And then finally, uh, Nick Ager on the LambdaCast channel uh, was talking about our most recent episode on algebraic data types. And they would like to hear a discussion on how to persist ADTs, uh, and especially some types, to a database. Um, specifically, they, they mentioned a relational database, but I think this probably applies to uh, a NoSQL type database as well. So any thoughts on saving your ADTs into a database? Well, the ADT is a type, right? Yes. So specifically, the, he's talking about uh, some types here. So it's a type of many forms, right? It's a type right. that could be either an A or a B or a C. So how do you save that in a database?
3: I mean, if it's a sum type and you're talking relational databases, you could pull them from different tables entirely.
0: So you'd have like a table per um, per type, per type, per like sub, it's not Subtype. actually subtypes, but per uh, case of the, the sum. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that could work. Uh, we could also do it where we kind of build an aggregate of all the fields that would be across all the types. And then we have sort of an enum flag kind of thing that tells us which one we're on. And we only access the fields that are associated with the, the type. Yeah. So if you have a, a foo of string and a bar of int, we're going to have both a string and an int in our table and an enum that tells us which one it is. And then we're only going to pull out the the field that we care about.
3: You're saying like some, uh, no judgment, probably, but some monster table that's um, got columns for each piece of data that all those uh, some types might have. Well, it wouldn't be all your some types. This would be for a particular some type. So the oh, subtype has three cases. For, for all the cases in that subtype. In
0: that single subtype, yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of what's happening under the hood, right? It kind of becomes like a struct union kind of a thing. Right? That's what, I mean. There's so called discriminated unions. That that sort of falls on from the C concept of a union, where you can mm-hmm. have different sort of views of the data, and some will use certain fields and some will use other fields. Yeah. So that would be one way to do it. Um, if it's a NoSQL database, this seems pretty simple, right? You would just shove just, your structure in there. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever structure you have, you would just serialize it and shove it straight in there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, I guess this is a win for Logan, who loves NoSQL databases over me, who likes relational databases. NoSQL databases, clear win here, much easier to work with.
3: Yeah. Um, Unless I'm right in all the cases.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm sure there's no fallacy that has that name partial whole fallacy, something like that. Our topic for this episode is uh, this question by Chris Lopez. He wanted to know what are our thoughts about dynamic functional languages like Clojure, kind of specifically in this context of uh, we talk a lot about static functional languages, and there's this whole other side, the dynamic functional languages, and what kind of is their role, what's their place, how do we see them, that that sort of thing. So uh, let's start off. uh, Does anyone want to just take a stab at what is the big difference between dynamic and static in in this context? Like, what are we talking about when we say dynamic and when we say static?
2: So, um, I probably know the least about this, of this group, because I think everyone else here has used a dynamic language before. Um, and I guess I have too, actually. But, uh, it's, when we're talking about dynamic or static, we're talking about variables, right? Talking about, are the variables, um, are the variables declared with a type, or the variable just something?
0: Okay, so you're saying like, um, do, do you just say foo is five, or do you have to say int foo equals five?
2: Yeah, that's a real simple way, I think, of my understanding anyway, of a dynamic versus static language. And uh, I could be totally wrong, but that's that's
0: my understanding.
3: Doesn't Ruby claims that it's a strongly typed language?
0: Okay, so right, use the word strong there, which is yeah, different yeah. from static and dynamic. But it's yes.
3: it's this dynamic, so we can't necessarily say that static type. Necessarily ensures that types prevent uh, improper usage.
2: One other thing I feel like I do want to bring up is that uh, there's languages like there's functionality functionality now in C# where you can just say my you know it's a var var this is whatever and it right. figures out the type for you. So it really does have a type under the under the hood. Like with your foo equals five example, like it doesn't. You don't have to say int, yeah. You can just say var foo is five. It's
3: still there. It's just kind of syntax sugar, so you don't have to type the.
2: Uh, right, right. I bar. think that's. I think that's kind of an important distinction. Is that really you can't say foo equals five and then foo equals uh, a string later, and then foo is an object later. Which right. I think uh, in dynamic. I don't. I don't know how that works in dynamically typed languages. It might depend on the language.
1: Yeah.
3: Usually the reference doesn't care, and you can just write over it with whatever you want.
1: Because uh, dynamically typed generally means like you have one type of types, so everything is the same, so you wouldn't know.
0: Do you mean like from the variable's perspective?
1: Yeah. Isn't it sort of like that?
0: So the distinction I think is the most useful to think about this is in a statically typed language, the type kind of lives on the variable. And the variable says, at the other end of, the, I know what's on the other end of this, there's an int or a string or you know, whatever on the other end of this. In a dynamically typed language, the variable doesn't really store any information. It just says there's something. I have a name, and I'm pointing to some bucket in memory, right? And at the other end of that is uh, you know, an object or, or a piece of data, and it knows what type it is. This isn't to say these are exclusive, because you have things like C sharp, where the variable knows what type it is, but then the object also knows what type it is, because you can't just cast it willy-nilly, right? In C, the object doesn't actually know what type it is. Right? You can just cast however you want to, and that's fine. That will just go through. I mean, it may crash, <laughs> but uh, nothing, there's no runtime exception for an invalid cast, at least in traditional C. Um, whereas in C Sharp, there, there would be. So sort of the, the value in memory knows what type it is, and the variable knows what, it, what type it is. In JavaScript, only the value in memory knows what type it is. The variable x, if you say x equals 5, and then you later say x equals hello, the string, the variable is just pointing to a different bucket in memory. It doesn't care. There's no type associated with it. But in C sharp, if you said int x equals five and then later x equals string, well, that variable can't be pointed at a value of type string because it's statically typed, and those don't uh, agree.
3: That makes sense. And there's a big like runtime versus build slash compile time component to this. Right? Yes,
0: static types have to be at compile time. So the example Aaron was given with var. The compiler is simply looking at the right side of the equal sign and saying, what will be here? And I'm going to fill that in for you. Like, I'm going to do the typing for you, which is why you can't have member variables of type var. You can't just say some member variable X and then not equal something.
3: Right. Um, and then like C basically peels all of its type information off at runs. you know, as it, as it does the build. Like once the build's complete, all the runtime or all the type information is gone for the runtime. In C,
0: but not in like a Java or a Ruby or or Python or something like that. So then we have another side, which is strong versus weak. And that's where we get into the object knows what type it is. So I guess C would be an example of a static weak. So in C, it's static. We have to say what's on the other end. But then we're allowed to kind of like change it around however we want to. In Ruby, we don't know what's at the other end, but once we get there, we can't just change around willy-nilly because uh, it it knows it's a string or an int or whatever, and therefore it won't let us convert that to something else. Well, we
3: can we can reassign the variable to whatever we want in Ruby, but we can't mix it with other things and expect it to interact. Like, if it's like, I expect to operate on a string and you pass it something that's not a string, it will complain.
0: Uh, kind of at the function level. Yeah. 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 Um, correct. So, the the idea there is that the – and you can't just say this thing that's at the other end of this um, variable is an int when it's actually a string. Like in Ruby, a string knows it's a string. There's a little header that tells it what kind of object type it is right? You know, and that kind of thing. So that's the strong side of the spectrum. So we have both sta- static and dynamic – And then we have strong and weak. And I think we're pretty much everything is strong these days. (laughs) There's not like a lot of weak languages floating around. So I I think we can just agree that everything we're going to talk about is strong. uh, But then the distinction is then between the static and the dynamic. So what I would like to hear, um, so Claudia has been in both, she's worked in both uh, static and dynamic languages. So I'm really interested to hear um, what your perspective is, kind of big picture on what do you see as the major differentiating factors, and maybe like a high level example of like why you might like one over the other.
1: So in my experience, I started functional programming from uh, closure. as you, well, yeah, from closure, And I started my working life in programming with Objective-C, which is another odd type of language, which is a bit of everything, because it is C and it is also this extension of C, which it can be typed or not. <laughs> basically yeah there was a type id that you could use to cast to any object at all so it was a very confusing type system and would you say
0: that that falls into the static weak uh, it, it was static but then it was weak because the objects you could kind of ignore their their type like the runtime information of other types and just cast them to whatever because it was a c kind yeah, of extension, yeah, right? it was
1: a c extension with a runtime yeah you could say that i guess So from that point of view, one advantage that there is specifically with LISPs and with Clojure is that you can experiment a lot more, especially in Clojure where the REPL is such a big thing. It's such a big fundamental concept. So you can just uh, leverage that to have a very pleasant uh, programming experience. For example, there used to be a LISP which was basically an assembly language for PlayStation 2, which is the language with which Naughty Dog made uh, Jack and Dexter.
0: Right, they wrote their own like graphics engine and everything in their own Lisp. They list wrote that-
1: everything in this Lisp, yeah. It was compiled with, I think it was a Lego oh. common Lisp. And this is called, there are two versions. Right. One is called Go- Ghoul, I guess, and the other one is called Goal. And they shipped like three games in it, at least. PS2 games. Yeah, they
0: did until they got bought by Sony. Yeah, and, and Sony said we can't hire list programmers for write, rewriting it all in Yeah, C++. wipe out everything.
1: Yep. <laughs> yes, uh, yep. such a waste. But also they they did that because the only person who could really uh, work with this com- work on this compiler was Andy Gavin, which was a founder of Naughty Dog, and he went away with uh, a big bag of dollars. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> went off to write. Uh, I think he went writing oh. uh, fiction. So and enjoying his money. So I guess it wasn't that easy to find someone else who could take care of this compiler, which was very unique. But I do wish they had open-sourced it because it sounds really interesting. Right, and that, that compiler had
0: some interesting properties compared to yes. like a C++-based engine, right? It they, could, they could dynamically reload the game exactly. while it was running?
1: Exactly, yes. They can change anything at any time they this is one of the reasons why their games were so good they had these very very short iteration times which in games it's a really good thing it's a really good thing everywhere but especially in games
0: especially in games yeah effectively they were they were hot reloading which is all the rage these days with webpack and stuff but they were hot reloading on a ps2 in like 2001 yes Which is pretty cool. It is cool. <laughs>
1: it, it is one of my favorite stories about lisping games. Not there are, not there are many, but <laughs> this one is good.
2: Sure. Um, I missed what you said. So what is so important about, or you said, what is really important in Clojure? You said, you say the repo, what? Uh, what The,
3: repl. Uh, the repl. REPL. The REPL. So that's a read, eval, print, loop. It's kind of like, um, imagine like a command line, but for your language. Mm-hmm. And you can go paste in or type uh, things for your language in there.
2: I've seen that actually for Elm. It's like a little area where you can kind of play, right? Just You can just do those small commands and see if they work or yeah. don't work. Is that Yeah, repl? but in
1: Lisp you can write entire functions, entire pieces of your program like that. And that's actually mm-hmm. the style. You can grow your program from the very start to maybe not the end. At some point, it gets compli- quite complicated. But if you use an editor that supports it, like, I don't know, Emacs does that, you can um, mm-hmm. rewrite your functions and just compile them on the fly, and they will reload. For example, you can... Um, there is a thing called Closure for Android, and you can run a, a re- comments on the Closure running on your Android machine, so you can program on your Android machine and see, and it does execute instantly. So you can, for example, if you think about making it a...
0: versus like compile, copy it over, yeah. reload the app. No,
1: no, no, no. It runs, it runs over there. So you have, you think you have this closure running on the Android, and you send code to it, basically, and you see your. It doesn't. It it runs on the on the device.
0: So the code's running on the Android device, and you're able to send it new versions of a function. It's able yes. to incorporate that kind of patch itself. And then when it evaluates, you're able to get like a response back from the runtime that says like, okay, that worked. And you're able to query it for information like live. Yes, that's and, as well. Yes. It's like a, a living system that you can get at. Yeah. Yes. So that's kind of, I, I think that's um, a, a good sense of what dynamic feels like. It feels very like this rebel. It's sort of like this, like clay that you're working with and you're kind of, you don't know exactly where you're going. So you're kind of molding it as you go and trying out things. And when something works, you might take it from your little experimentation area and move it into your program. And you might take your program, you might highlight a block of code and say, send a REPL. And then it just puts that function into your REPL. And now you can play with it there. So if you ever want to know what a function does, you load it in your REPL, you throw it, you know, you, you apply it to some values and you see what happens. Can you import libraries or
2: do usings or whatever in
0: REPL also? Okay. Yep. 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 And uh, so the major functional languages that use this sort of dynamic style, um, I think we identified was the Lisp family, which is kind of Lisp, Scheme, Racket, uh, closure, kind of all those. And then the other one that's different but still a dynamic language would be Erlang, and by extension uh, Elixir. So those are examples of sort of the dynamic sort of language family. That's within the FP space. There's there's dynamic languages like Python and Ruby and JavaScript that are not functional oriented, uh, but those two are sort of in the functional space. And uh, what? So then we have, by contrast, we have static languages. Um, does anyone want to talk to, or Claudia, do you want to talk to what it's like being in a static uh, statically typed functional language?
1: So um, yeah, I shall talk about. Uh, for example, a nice way to go from dynamic languages to static languages, in my case, was through ELM, which is a statically typed functional programming language, which is also pure, but doesn't have any higher abstractions like type classes, which you find in Haskell. So I guess it's somewhat more similar to um, ML and F-sharp, but it does have uh, an emphasis on purity, which I don't think you find in ML and F-Sharp. So that was a very nice uh, training ground, training wheels for moving on to more advanced uh, type systems. The nice thing with is that it unites both a certain ability to experiment and try new things with uh, quite solid types, so the compiler does guide you a lot in what will work. For example, in dynamic language, you never worry about types. In this kind of advanced functional statically typed programming languages, you want to specify the types. So the compiler will give you good type errors. You're developing more oriented towards the type. It's more how it works in your brain.
0: So so would you say that... Um sort of a a dynamic language has this feeling of being very, um, you know, look at the data and sort of does it have these properties, sort of the duck typing that came from Ruby? Like, can I do this operation on this bit of data? And I don't really care what the type of the data is as long as I can do this operation. I can get a a key, a property out of it or I can uh, iterate over it or something like that. And on the sort of the statically typed side, it's more like you're starting with a type. You're starting with... I know I for certain have this type, which is distinct from every other type. And I'm going to think about what I can do with this type.
1: Yes. Actually, at first, you know, they sell type inference as something that is good. And it is good in type systems like those of C Sharp and Java, where they make you repeat stuff endlessly for no good reason. But actually, it's nice to have, but it's actually contrary to how you develop programs in Elm and similar programming languages because you want to be aware of the types because the type helps you, help you think. Mm. So I found this big difference from experimentation that would often result in runtime errors, but was quite fun in dynamically typed functional languages. And this uh, rigor, but which would work out and would be very easy to maintain and change and refactor on the statically typed side. And also, these, it's a—it's quite a different way to think because they're, they're different tools. You can achieve the same goals, the different tools, and the experience is different, but they can both be pleasant.
0: Okay, and just to um, go over the kinds of languages that we, we would lump here into the statically typed families, we'd have the, um, the ML variants, so like standard ML, OCaml, things like that. Uh, F-sharp, which is sort of a derivative of ML. Um, we'd have Scala, which is a distinct type system uh, that's different from the MLs. We have Elm, which is also kind of a distinct type system in that um, it has uh, an enforcement of pure functions. So it, it in the type system, it cares about pure, pure versus effectual functions. I guess Elm is a little special in that it can't really express non-pure functions. Everything is <laughs> external. All the you can send commands to something else, but you don't really have like IO type stuff like you would in Haskell. So there's Elm and then there's Haskell, which is pure. This would be Haskell, Idris, PureScript. Um, and they are pure and they have this feature known as higher kinda types, which kind of sets them apart. Um, for most other languages. Scala also has higher kind of types, but is not pure. So it's it's kind of complex. have a lot of different variations. We need like a little matrix of <laughs> all the different features that these languages have. But all of them are are static and they all have this mindset towards types as a thing that you think about as not the fundamental thing, but you're kind of starting with it, and it guides a lot of what you do. So in Lisp, you never see a type annotation anywhere. And in something like C sharp, you might see types, but you kinda are putting them there to keep the compiler happy. And in Haskell or Elm, you might only see types <laughs> for a long time. You might design most of your program just with the types to the point to where the implementation might actually be trivial or insignificant. And we talked a little bit about this when we talked about abstraction. We talked about the function that goes from A to A. So there's some function, it's A to A. And we, we determined that there's only one possible implementation for that in, in a world that's pure. Um, and that's the identity function. And that kind of thing, just seeing a type signature and knowing a lot about it, that's very much the feeling I get when I'm in a static type system. And I really like that, which is why I gravitate towards the static type systems um, same way as Claudia does. Uh, one,
3: one thing that Claudia mentioned I thought was really interesting is it sounds like the languages with like the C sharps and Javas, when they have their type inferencing in place, it is more to like get the type system out of the way. Whereas in the in the Helms and or Elms and Haskells, uh, it's more like you don't want to do that too much because you're actually interested in what those types are because they're helpful, they help you reason about your application.
0: Yeah, and, and it should be pointed out that in the um, ML and like the OCaml tradition, they actually use the type inference a lot and they don't write down a lot of type annotations. That's sort of a a cultural thing. Whereas in the Haskell world, it's incredibly common to to have type signatures first and foremost and that everything has them. And in, like, the PureScript compiler, if you don't put type signatures on everything that's at the top level of a module, it's a warning. And that's annoying sometimes when you don't necess- like, you have literal data that you don't want to put a type on because it's pretty obvious what it is. It still warns you.
2: Real quick, a module is like a grouping of functions, right? Module could, is like a class. So how would, how, would, how would that have a type signature?
0: So, sorry, uh, a module is more like a namespace or a package, I don't understand how that would have a, have a uh, type signature. Oh, so the module itself doesn't have a type signature. I was talking about um, items that are exported from it. Okay, that, like, that, that like, makes look, sense. Like the individual items that are in there, only yeah. they all need type signatures. Exactly. So let's say you have something called um, connection string equals, quote, your connection string. That's pretty obviously a string. No one's going to ever not know that's a string. Um, but you still it still yells at you and says, hey, put a type signature on this thing. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so... Our big picture difference is, is that dynamic languages are kind of REPL experimentation feel-your-way oriented, where static type systems tend to push you in a way that's a little more, let's think about the types, let's let's even write the types down and think about how they interact before you write any code. Where in a dynamic language you're definitely writing code like immediately or or very close to immediately.
3: Scott Walshon talked about, okay, we're gonna model our entire um uh, Kind of business structure around, like for example, poker. And to do that, uh, he throws out things like you need a hand, and you need a deck, and you need cards, and cards can have suits, and uh, they can have values, and so on and so forth. And he basically like laid out all the nouns of of poker, and perhaps some of the adjectives as well. And Uh, He didn't actually go into any, like, transformations or interactions or anything like that. But, and he was expressing all this in F-sharp. And even with him just expressing it with F-sharp's, like, notation, it's still kind of pretty easy, at least for me, not even knowing what F-sharp syntax usually looks like, to, to grok what it is that it's doing. And his thought was, well, this is very, very close to, you know, whatever it is that you're that your business analysts want to speak in.
0: Right. Right. It's close to the domain.
3: And it's not necessarily that it's like English, like or, or human language. Like it's just that it's very plain. There, there, there aren't like artificial types in the way, like factories or flywheels or anything that you could reach out of the gang of four book. Uh, it's just the types that you're interested in.
0: Okay. So this is sort of like along that, uh, design, uh, domain-driven design kind of spectrum, like if you're interested in that kind of thing, you will tend to gravitate maybe towards this kind of thing. And there's a whole discipline called denotational design, which comes out of mathematics and that um, Scott Vlashen was talking about in that talk. There's also a talk we've linked to before by Connell Elliott about it. Um, And this is something that I only really see come up often in the static type world, because you have a tool that's very well suited to express these sort of, domain concepts, right? Um, versus if we were in the dynamic world, like, do you, you have anything to say about that, Claudia? Like, if if you were doing, you know, if you're doing a, a poker game, if it's in a static world, we would probably start off modeling the types that we would have. Yeah. We'd say, oh, uh, a hand is either, you know, empty or maybe, maybe it's a, a list of cards. We, we have some types to model the state of the game, um, kind of what phase is it, if it's like Texas Hold'em or something. And we can put all that in the types. We can express it there. If we're in a dynamic type system, we don't have that. What might it feel like to come at this problem from a dynamic language?
1: Well, I'm thinking about if it was enclosure, we would have at least some modeling of the data using maps, most likely. Uh, I find the one thing I really miss uh, in dynamic languages uh, is up ADTs, because the really good at expressing this kind of stuff. And when you try to do the same thing in dynamic languages, it's it's a bit awkward. It's a sort of thing that you can't imagine if you've never done it. But after you have tried it, it's really hard to go back.
0: Okay. So this kind of gets to the idea that um, in dynamic languages, they tend to have very few data structures that they use yeah. very often. Yeah. So you would have like lists and maps, maybe vector, if that's a useful distinction, maybe set. Uh, but you kind of have like three or four main data types, and you can do everything with those. Um, so you're saying you would try to fit the shape of a hand or a game, you know, kind of a thing, into those existing structures. Yes. It's a, it's a list, or it's an, a vector, or it's a map, or that would know, be what
1: like happens that. in the end. Yeah.
0: And since you have a lot of functions that know how to operate on those, you can you do get a lot of utility. Once it's in a map, you've got a lot of functions that can do map things with it. Yeah. And that reminds me a lot of JavaScript. <laughs> If you are familiar with Ramda or Lodash, with JavaScript, you have a gigantic toolkit for basically slicing and dicing objects and arrays. <laughs> Those are like your two things. And you've got a whole lot of functions for working with them. Um, but everything then has to be mushed into a object or array or some nested version of that. So this kind of brings up an interesting idea that you may not have a lot of types, like of different types in a dynamic language. In, in a Haskell, it's very easy to make new types, right? You say data, the name equals something. It's like super trivial to make a new type. But in Clojure, if you want to make a new type, what do you do? It comes off a little counterintuitive to me. And again, I'm inexperienced here. But it felt like,
2: oh, dynamic dynamic means you get all this freedom and you can do whatever you want. But kind of what I'm hearing is actually what you end up with is just, but you end up using just a couple different types to represent everything, and you get a little bit more constricted or constrained in that in that regard. I'm not sure that's the case. Is that that sounds like kind of what you were saying though, is that you almost miss having having the types that you get when you do have a static type language when you're in dynamic type world.
1: I do. I do now.
3: I, I think with uh, like, you know, playing around a lot with JavaScript is you get a lot of convention or kind of like understood structure. Uh, So if you're moving data around between two different formats, you kind of have to know what that is, and that's not necessarily something that the code captures. Um, Not without you having to kind of like play the role of the computer and understand what it is that it's doing. Uh, You can't just look at a function and know that it takes in this kind of blob and then outputs this other kind of blob. That's not immediately intuitive. Um, So you'd have to like document that somewhere, or it becomes tribal knowledge, or uh, you screwed up.
2: Gotcha. It's uh, yeah, one of one of those basically.
0: But but that said, once you have it into the shape of a you know a object or an array, you have a very large number of tools that work with it. Where if you go in Haskell and you say data foo equals a or b, there's actually zero functions that know how to work with that. <laughs> I guess I guess identity. You could pass it into identity, and you could put those things into a list. But there's nothing that operates on that data type that you've made. Like you have to. Uh, invent every single function that works on it now. Well, But you can still stuff these into, like, Haskell's lists and sure. lists and maybes, right? Yeah, yeah. You can use them inside some sort of structure-y thing, container-y thing, mm-hmm. but, but there's nothing that takes a foo A and turns it into a foo B, or, or you know, like, whatever useful thing you want to do with this. If foo is your domain, you mm-hmm. know, something that exists in your domain, there's no, like, easy way to work with it, like, pluck a, a field off of it or something like that or there may not be um, built in. And if it's just, you know, if you've kind of mapped your domain onto an existing thing, like a like a map, then you definitely have tons of functions that know how to work with it. So I think the benefit of that dynamic is going for is, is that we've built up this large toolkit. And if we can adapt our data model to fit these existing types that we have that are very well known and understood and have sort of common idioms around them, we can reuse a lot of the code that we've already written.
2: What are you going to do if you want to track something like a person, though, that doesn't have a real common, you know, like, OK, well, there's a couple strings and there's a integer for their age. And there's, you know, that's that's when you say foo, I think like, OK, for example, foo might be an object like a person and you're out of luck in that scenario. Right. You're not often making uh, custom types that are just some variation of a string or an integer or something like that, um, that you want that functionality you get with string and integer.
0: I would say that in C-sharp, that's certainly true. Actually, in, in like the Haskells and the PeerScripts and stuff, it actually is really common to make a small variation of a string, like email or validated email, that does have... Um, it is under the hood just a string, and you want to work with all the string functions, and they have ways of making that that work and be convenient for you. Um, but there's probably a useful distinction to be made here between like the Haskells and like the MLs. Like like F sharp. Let's let's pick on F sharp for a while. <laughs> um, if you're in F sharp, I think there's a lot of criticisms that you could level against it as why you would not want to go down that route. That you wouldn't have like those restrictions wouldn't be there in like a Haskell. So in, in F sharp, if you make a new type, there's not like a super convenient way to get a lot of new fun to recover a lot of functionality. But as we've been talking about in Haskell, if you um, make a new type and then you say, oh by the way, this is a functor or a Monad or something, you automatically get a huge amount of functionality that just works with it now, because you've you've been able to supply just enough structure. It's sort of the same way that if you make your own class in Ruby, it can't really do much. But if you do that, and then you implement each and the comparison operator, and then you mix in a numerator, you suddenly have all these functions that just magically work for you. And that kind of system... I think if you're in a language that doesn't have that system, it feels like making new types is very onerous because you make the new type, then you have to make all this additional functionality to go with it to make that type useful. That the, Sort of the utility of the type is related to the number of functions that work with it. And in F-Sharp, you make a new type, and there's not a lot of functions that just work with it.
2: Or you use inheritance, right?
0: Um, you might, although that's certainly not typical for an ML. You've, like in F-Sharp that, I'm, that's I'm in saying, .NET. I'm sorry. I'm
2: talking about in, this, in the in c world, in in the uh in the languages that don't make it really easy to make a brand new type that's similar to but not exactly a string or an int or whatever.
0: You're saying because you inherit from something you get its functionality? Yeah. Yeah, although I mean in your experience do you make a lot of new types? Is that something that you're doing frequently? Nope.
2: Not not at all and I and I think it's it's cuz it's not super easy and not really encouraged and
0: Yeah, so there's a cultural aspect and there's a practical like I don't have a lot of stuff I can use with it, so why am I making a new type kind of thing? It's awkward. I have to like put things in it and rip them out and that kind of stuff. Exactly. And that's how an F-sharp kind of feels and, and historically that's how functional programming languages were, like the statically typed ones is that you would make these new types and it was, it was actually really easy to make new types. That part, no problem. But then there weren't a lot of functions you could use with it. So um, in that case you, know, you could see a very strong argument for, okay, I'm going to go dynamic because yeah, I'm not gonna make that new types anyway. So I might as well not deal with sort of like some of the awkward stuff that comes with a static type language. Uh, but really the Haskells of the world um, and sort of its kin have pushed that forward quite a lot to where you can make a new type now and get a huge amount of um, just utility right out of the gate for very little work. So that's kind of changed the, I would say the the trade-off a bit. And maybe if people aren't familiar with type classes and or, or, or equivalent effects, um OCaml now has modules, uh, a module system, which actually does a lot of what type classes do. So it's a little unfair to say OCaml is not in this category. And if you look at the most commonly used like statically typed functional languages, it's OCaml and Haskell by far, right? Those are the ones that are making inroads that are used in big complex systems because they have an answer to this problem of, I don't want to have to rewrite the same code all all, all over.
3: Doesn't Haskell have uh, lenses that take care of this?
0: So lenses are specifically for getting... And updating data in like deeply in nested like data structures, right? Although you can use them for much more than that. That's that's the simplistic case. Let's just start right. there. But like, um,
3: I'm going to convert this uh, list of persons into a list of ages, right? Which are numbers that I can operate on with my sure. Common number I stuff. mean,
0: just a map would get you that right. if you just. Pl- but the plucking of the age off of the person mm-hmm. is where the lens would come in, right? Um, and, and that's another layer of like reusability and. Um, and sort of like getting a lot of power for free. And another example: of this would be like in PureScript. If you want a getter function for your record, which is kind of like a, a struct, uh, those are automatically generated for you—getter and setter functions. So you don't have to write those; they're just so you know. You, you create this new type, and it's this like record type, and you do actually have functionality out of the gate there. But historically, that hasn't been super true. So I can see like historically, there's been a divide between I don't want to go down the the static path, because then I get locked into like these types that don't do a lot unless I write a lot of functionality for them, I'm just going to convert my data to fit these existing forms where I already have hundreds of functions that makes my job easier. Like that, that seems like an appealing route if it's like, say 15 years ago, not to say there's no value to that now, but I can see like historically why these communities diverged in their approaches. Did you have anything else to say about this, Claudia, in terms of like this divide and the value of dynamic over static or static over dynamic?
1: Well, I think another um, problem that people have with statically typed type is the, uh, the time it takes to make it compile. But I think it's actually sort of the same time you're spending on a dynamically typed system to debug it. So you can choose, you can either have a dynamically typed program and debug it later for an amount of time, which you don't know how long it will take. Or you can have the time upfront making your statically typed functional program compile, which might take a while and you're not quite sure how long it will take. But once that is passed, you shouldn't have to mess with it anymore and you'll get for free your refactoring ability. So basically in a statically, statically typed functional program, you can refactor things. Just, even mindlessly you just change things as you want them to be and then you follow the ty- you follow the compiler errors and you bash the compiler errors until no more compiler errors pop up which uh
3: yeah, so it's like yeah. you pay that cost like once as opposed to like in the dynamic land every time every you want to work on this yes. complex tree of data you have to redebug it again and again
1: yes that this i think yeah. is the main advantage of statically typed for me disadvantage refactoring as well so you don't have to do as much debugging you have might have to do a bit of debugging but it's not as much on the other hand generally the tools for debugging are worse because obviously we we don't spend that much time in it so we don't care as much
0: there's not as much engineering effort spent on making them good
1: yeah but it's not every time you shouldn't once you have it running and you change it and it compiles, it should keep running even through refactoring.
0: So you, you pointed out a really important thing I think, it which is people often judge the sort of difficulty of working with the system and they, they kind of measure, well, in a dynamic language I can just write some code and run it, and it runs immediately. And in a static language, I write it and then it yells at me <laughs> and I kind of like mess with the compiler and da-da-da-da. Da. What you're saying is these things are these are the same thing, like, you're not getting it, you're not actually faster in dynamic language, you're just allowed to not have to care about it yet. Yes. Like, your program hasn't crashed, you haven't found the bug, you're going to have to spend the time to find the bug, well, hopefully, <laughs> I, guess, I guess you could choose not to. In the static one, you don't get the option, you have to address the fact that you didn't handle this or that, or you messed up your types, and I'm, I'm not even going to run it until, until we get past that. So the you pay that cost up front, but it's not like you're actually doing more here.
1: I think you actually end up doing less. My in my measure, I spend less time making making types compile than I would have if I was debugging something.
0: If you're like hunting down a dynamic, yeah.
1: Also, because as as a, as Ogan said, it's like you have to do it every time. Every time you change something, you can mess everything up. And I'm thinking JavaScript right now. With this.
0: Sure, and and that's been my experience as well, is that I feel like if I could just pay the cost once at compile time, I would then, from then on, not have to worry about it anymore. Um, Logan, you were going to say something.
3: Uh, I've definitely had cases with Flow um, caught some sort of error. I didn't understand what the error meant, in part because I had in my head what the structure and what the transformation was supposed to be. And eventually I kind of like found out that there was... Something in between that was breaking the link between all of the types, and I was just thinking like, wow, it's if I didn't have a type system, basically being super strict here, uh, this would have taken me like two hours to find.
0: Right, you were in your head, it was A B D, or you know, it was A B D, and it was actually A B C D, and you had forgotten that C, and you're like, where's yeah. the C coming from? And you're like, right. oh, oops, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely.
3: Um, but but to, to kind of play devil's advocate here, and uh, dynamic land, I know a lot of defenses. Well, you would just write unit tests to cover oh. all of these things. Mm-hmm. And those are that's actual execution which is better than compiling I would imagine in the stance.
1: Well,
0: because it's running raw code
1: from this point of view I have something to say. I think of the type checker as a tool, a tool which is made with logic, with actual formal logic, a tool to check that everything in my program makes sense. And that is built in the compiler. So you can do the same thing by yourself, with unit tests. But that is actually a lot of work.
0: So, so you're saying your unit tests are reproducing what's in the compiler?
1: No, uh, well, sort of, yeah.
0: Or some of it, some subset of S- some it? Some of
1: it, some subset of it, yeah. The ones, the subset of it you are, you care about in that moment. You care about enough.
0: But it's you having to do it.
1: Yeah, but you have to do it.
0: Uh, and
3: you have to do it every time. Yes, every time and you change You have to have the discipline to do it. Like, how many of us always start our JavaScript functions with if statements that make sure that we got passed in valid data? Yes. Right. <laughs> and usually what happens is, in the wild, it's like, well, I know when I invoked it over here that I passed it in the right thing, so I can just lean on that. And and only in some cases <laughs> we'll, we'll write defensively around it, but generally we wait until it explodes first.
0: Yeah, I would concur with that. I think um, from seeing very large-scale dynamic Code bases in JavaScript, um, you'll see the occasional check for something, because this is one of those like identified places where a bad value could get in here. And in a, so I guess we could talk about the sort of the strength about the, the type systems uh, on the static side, but generally they disallow null, pretty much all of them. And so you'll never have to worry about that. Like if it says it takes a string, you don't have to worry that you didn't get a string that you got null instead, like you actually got a string.
3: Right so basically like there's a there's still a void value but it's treated as its own type that you have to handle separately
0: right so you can never accidentally get stuff in there
3: right and there's like that just abolishes an entire class of unit tests that you would have to do right did i get the right number of arguments passed to me did i you know were they were they valid did they say
0: what they were going to be what they said they were and you can't really get that in a in a dynamic type system right because it might even be allowable that you it could be an A or a B or C, and, and it's not super uncommon uh, to then check, like, if I got a this, if I got an A, do this, if I got a B, do that, and if I got a C, do this other thing. And and like you're effectively a, almost like a, an ADT that has three, uh, like the flow style ADTs, where it's like, I can take a string or an int or a boolean, and then you have to do a switch inside and and have different logic for mm-hmm. each one of those paths. Right. That, I th- think that's fairly common. and. Because you only have a few major types that you're dealing with, usually like lists and vectors and and maps and stuff, it's maybe not super unreasonable to check. I mean, this happens definitely a lot in the JavaScript world. If you look inside, like Ramda, uh, you'll see in the type signatures it takes a string or a regular expression, it takes a you know a list or a whatever.
3: Uh, usually that's Lodash. I don't think Ramda does that.
0: There's a couple places, but yeah, yeah. Lodash is certainly much more guilty of that. Where it so has like lo- the implicit pluck thing or Mm -hmm. whatever yep if you pass a string it like plucks it off instead of it being an array. yeah
3: i'd be interested in seeing that most of the time in um in ramda it requires you to use its own lens stuff for that
0: okay so uh what else do we want to say um claudia brought up refactoring i think that cannot be understated how how much safer it is to refactor (laughs) when you have static types it's kind of like you have unit tests for everything that you care about from the context of refactoring
1: yeah, And also, you don't have to be so terribly alert as you would have to be otherwise, because debugging in a dynamically typed language like JavaScript is a full hands of deck, every end of deck effort, and you you really have to put your brain into it. While with um, a type system like Haskell, you just go with the flow type error fix, type error fix, type error fix. In the end, no more type errors. Finished. And that is true with Elm as well, in my experience.
2: When we're talking about refactoring, what type of refactoring? Are we, are we talking about moving around functions? Or are we talking about renaming variables? Or what, what exactly are we talking about? Because it feels like... Yes.
1: Even changing the data types. Okay,
2: changing the data types, I feel like that particular one would make a difference in dynamic and static. But I don't see what the difference would be like. Okay, now I move this, this static function from here to here. I don't see how in dynamic or... Um, Architect language okay, I
1: mean like the full scalar factor when you're actually changing the structure of your application mm-hmm. which you probably wouldn't do in a dynamic language because it's too much of a change all at once but what oh. we would do is break okay. it into smaller changes and you do a bit of it and you do a bit of it until I mean you probably will have a time frame and a roadmap of where it should end up and what you're going to do at every single step and you're going to compensate for the inability of the language to guide you through the refactoring with that. But that is a compensation. Mm. It is possible to just mindlessly, almost, not totally mindlessly, you still have to put some brains in it, but you can make your changes as they come to you and then you can fix things later in statically typed functional languages like Elm or Asco.
2: Is this because if we're, if we're, for example, let's say we're, let's say we just want to take a function and, oh, you know what? This doesn't belong in this spot. It belongs in this class instead. Is it because in a dynamic, dynamically typed language, that reference, like there's, you could just still be calling it off the old, off the old class and there's no way you'd know that without like a big find and replace or something. It, Is that kind of where you're going to run into There's the problem?
3: no, there's no compile time check in a, in a dynamic language by definition. Yeah. So, uh, you won't, and you'll stumble over an error when you try to access that property that isn't there anymore.
2: In runtime, though.
3: Yeah, but it'll be in runtime, and it won't happen until you actually invoke that piece of the code.
0: Yeah, that right. sounds annoying.
3: <laughs> and some places don't get as much
0: traction as others, so it might be some time before you find it. Right. Yeah, and a more subtle kind of thing would be, what if you had a, a function that took one parameter, and you decide that it should now take a second parameter? And you update it in the three places that you know about, but you don't update it in the four other places that your control F failed to find. Yeah, and um, that a compiler, a, a static language, will absolutely one hundred percent find every single one of those for you. Mm-hmm. And in a dynamic language, you 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 might get a type miss or a you know argument number wrong number of arguments kind of thing. It might just pass undefined in, like it does in JavaScript, and it silently move on. <laughs> um, right. Hmm. But again, you have to actually be running that code, um, so you have to have really uh, this is why the I think the emphasis is so strong to have 100%, 100% test coverage in your unit tests mm-hmm. is because it at least helps for these kinds of things. But if you can imagine, like, that's one example, one place, and that might be minutes to hunt down. It might be tens or hours, depending on if it's very subtle. Mm-hmm. If you had a static type system in a compiler, that y- it would be seconds. You would know exactly. Type coverage is an anecdote.
3: It just says, at one point, I have touched this piece of code and moved on
0: oh for 100 percent coverage
3: well yeah i mean code code coverage doesn't necessarily mean that you've got test
0: quality it's just yeah we can't we have no objective measurement for quality
3: i mean like if all the things that i mock up and then send in my function behave properly then then yeah everything just works but i'm not actually sending the real thing in when i'm sending in a mock
0: right and mocks can hide uh problems Right, right. you can hide API change problems and, and all kinds of things like right. that. Right,
3: I have to remember to update the mock if I update the original sources signature somehow.
0: Yeah. So if if you're one of these people um, who says, you know, I really love the way it feels to write in a dynamic programming language. It feels like I just I just get in there, I start writing, and it's fast. It feels really um, creative, and I'm just kind of exploring. I totally feel you. I love that feeling. I just want you to think about. Okay, so do you do that all the time, or do you like have to do? Appro- do you have to do more like a TDD kind of style? Because if you do anything approaching like writing your tests first, or along with, or immediately after your code, you could kind of think of getting it to compile as writing your tests along with the code. And so, like the idea that it takes a while to get that to turn green or to compile is not actually a weird thing, even from a even coming at it from a dynamic language perspective, and. Uh, yeah, so I, what Claudia said earlier it can't be emphasized enough that if you just write some code and you run it, you actually aren't done. <laughs> like, you have to go so much further to know that it's tested and it's working. Where in a com- a strong compiled language, you know, like a Haskell or an Elm or something, that we joke that, you know, in, in Java, the joke is it compiled ship it because it's like, you know, that's not true, right? <laughs> or C before it, right? You, it was a joke because it was so absurdly not true. And in Haskell and Elm, and especially languages like Idris, We are getting very, very close to where we can say it compiles ship it, like that we are with a very high degree of certainty, okay with that. Um, And that's like a big change that, you know, if you you think of your static type system as this kind of, okay, it compiles, whatever, how good a guarantee is that really? Flip that on its head and and consider that there might be a static type system that that really, wow, okay, it compiles. I'm pretty darn confident in this now and not in a sarcastic way. (laughs)
3: uh for what it's worth just kind of a side note uh flow actually has a coverage checker you can run over it because flow keeps in mind that you have legacy javascript projects and everything so you can uh kind of add types as you go and you can say okay well i'm going to annotate this file so i'm going to put the little flow marker at the top and then you know it, it assumes that everything is like of type any which basically means there's no type information until you start adding it on um and, they, you know, sometimes it's not always clear what's getting type inferred versus what's actually just, you know, being type checked. And so you can actually run it over the code and it'll colorize all the things that you need
0: to see. So you're saying that's almost like automatic unit test coverage coming from the types? It's
3: it, it. like test coverage, but applied to types. Right. Because in Flow, not everything is typed. In Haskell, everything's typed, right? Right, because it has to be, yeah, from mm-hmm. the ground up. Yeah.
1: Um, one thing... That uh, dynamically typed languages can do, and we don't yet know if statically typed languages can do, is the Erlang case. For example, there is uh, so there is Erlang, and the same actor system that there is in Erlang has been implemented in Akka, but there is no complete version of typed Akka yet. I think, I think the tried ones. I think so, Wadler tried to put a type system into Erlang and they only partially succeeded because Erlang has got a dialyzer, which I think it's called success typing, if I remember right, but it's not complete by Mm -hmm. any means. And Akka had a typed version, but I think they scrapped it and then they are making another one now, which probably someone else knows better than me how far along they are with that.
0: So what's the primary... Can you give an overview of what the what the problem is there? Uh, well, like, what's the big roadblock?
1: I, I'm not quite sure, <laughs> to be honest, because I, I have okay. limited Erlang experience and I have zero scale experience, so I, I wouldn't know. But you should probably read... The, anyone interested should probably read about uh, the uh, Wadler attempt, which I think might have produced a paper, possibly.
0: I, I imagine he wrote a paper. He writes a lot of papers. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: so the, I mean, if we were to take
0: it just a very high level, an informed stab at this, the problem with an actor is that an actor can kind of change its shape yes. in response to a message, yes, right? Yes, it's, it's very sort of, runtime-based.
1: It Things happen at runtime all the time, and you, know, you don't know what is going to get sent to you
0: right and but you, so you you reply to a message and you might then return a new version of yourself that replies to a different message or the same message so sort of if you were to type out the messages that you know how to reply to those can be shifting it feels like a sum type to me it feels like at some level there's a finite discrete number of states that you would be in yeah that could be typed that sounds I'm, I'm reasonable a little curious as why that can't be applied and well Maybe I'm just like well, very... Well, if
1: Wadler tried.
0: Yeah, Wadler is very much smarter than I am. So if he if he was not having a good time at that, I don't mean to make it sound well, trivial. I think my, we... It's probably one of those problems that seems easy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we might get there. But I think it's interesting that it's possible to do something with dynamic typed languages. And we know it's possible because it's running WhatsApp and whatnot. And, but it's taking us ages to get to the same point in statically typed languages.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, there are certainly things that have been successfully done in dynamic languages for decades that we have only really had a solution to in statically typed languages in the last like few years. So there's a lot of sort of ongoing development in the statically typed uh, space to get closer and closer to the capabilities that are available in a dynamically typed language. And I, I feel this when... Um, like I remember playing around with static languages, static FP languages years ago, like in F Sharp, and there was there was a definite trade off between like the Ruby way that I was doing it at the time and the F Sharp way, and I could see benefits to both of them, but they were different. And now, uh, like recently, I was doing some PureScript stuff, and really, the PureScript and the JavaScript both had answers to the same problems, and the answers weren't super different. It wasn't like oh, here's the JavaScript way and here's the really crappy, clumsy, awkward PureScript way. It was like oh and here's the pure script way and like you know it's, it's different but it's it's pretty close because the type machinery is is sophisticated enough not that it's necessarily more complex although you could argue that there is some complexity that has crept, crept in there um or at least um maybe complexity is the wrong word requiring of a mathematical sophistication that is uncommon amongst most programmers <laughs> or you know mathematical slash categorical theory uh like understanding those concepts. Um, it didn't feel that far apart. It felt like, wow, here's the JavaScript version. Here's the PureScript version. And the PureScript version is just like the JavaScript version with types and, and all these wonderful guarantees, but it wasn't like we were giving up a lot of the, the guarantees or uh, sorry, uh, we weren't giving up a lot of the, the niceties that we had in the JavaScript version, the ease of working with data and manipulating it and moving it around.
2: What are some of these niceties that you're talking about? Cause you're saying that there, there
0: are things that we're just getting. What are they? Okay, so uh, you do an HTTP request, mm-hmm. and you get the response back, and you do dot foo, And I've just extracted the foo key off of whatever that JSON thing that came back was. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get much easier than that. That is really dang handy. Yeah, just saying, like, yeah, just grab this, and you don't have to say what it is anywhere. You're just saying, like, yeah. I,
2: I'm expecting a foo there. I'm, I just want
0: it. Yes, and you could even guard it if it's going to fail, you know, that kind of thing. But you didn't Mm -hmm. have to do it. There's not much ceremony around that. You want to do that in, like, C Sharp? Well, we got to, like, write a deserializer for it and list the structure of it, and, you know, it's this huge kind of ordeal. I think there's, Um, like, the message bag now, but, yeah, either way. Yeah. um, That's that's recent. In something like PureScript or Haskell, uh, you can define the structure that you expect it to be when it comes back, Mm -hmm. and then you can kind of say, and automatically generate a deserializer for JSON, that, that produces one of these for me just like go make it happen
1: mm, and they're okay. very
0: good at doing that so you've defined the structure of what what it, you expect it to be at the end of the day um which you are going to have to do in a static type system but the extra work involved and then like moving things in and out kind of the the bread and butter of dynamic languages is easy munging of data right like like ruby and pearl and python grew up out of this like munge was a common word Uh, munging text files, munging config, munging data, you know, responses to like HTTP requests. They were very good at that. Um, It was very quick to do. And I I actually feel that way a lot of times in like Haskell and PureScript is that I can just kind of munge stuff. And it's not this big, complex, sophisticated, you know, shuttling types around all over the place kind Mm -hmm. of operation. Mm, Um, But I don't necessarily feel that way in a language that doesn't have some of these facilities to like auto-generate things like uh, F-sharp.
3: And one, one thing I'll point out is, like, I've been using Emacs. I'm still learning it. Maybe everybody's still learning it. We're just in different points in the fractal, right? Um, and, you know, it, it has a Elisp, which is a Lisp, Lisp dialect. And uh, one of the Emacs's strengths is that you can just arbitrarily go and say, I'm just going to highlight this Emacs, or this, this, this Lisp code, and I'm going to execute it inside of Emacs itself. So whether it operates on Emacs' buffers, or it changes the selection of text that you have, or whatever, it can do all of those things, and you just kind of do that on the fly. And it sounds like if you're pretty proficient with Emacs, that comes up quite a bit. Um, but, you know, the, the, the type shackles, so to speak, aren't there. You don't have to worry about making sure that it all checks, and that, you know, you handled... Uh, the, the otherwise case of your maybe and, and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, on the other and, hand, when you download extend, um, a Lisp code from repositories, very often it breaks, sometimes horribly. And every time you're up, up, updating your uh, w- the libraries you use in, in Emacs, it's sometimes a harrowing experience.
2: Yeah, yeah. Of trying to sync your, like your, your editor with whatever you're seeing, whatever you're finding online? Well, it's like uh,
3: um, one of my packages will make some slight change to itself, and somewhere along the lines, that data or that behavior stumbles upo- upon another package. Uh, and, and there's no like there's no checks in the way. It's just like, well, I expect a list that has this kind of data structure thing. I hope that's what I get. Mm. And sometimes that... That hope is dashed
0: <laughs> got it. it it does not it does not the package is not delivered yeah and figuring out why can often be very non-trivial at that point right that's that's what you're talking about where like now you got to go debug it and you kind of have to debug it from scratch every time
3: and it's always somebody else's code base right yeah
0: or often is i i should um correct myself before i go too far i i mischaracterized f sharp thinking about it F# has type providers, which would allow you to bring in JSON data and, and other data very cleanly without doing a lot of work. So F# does have a solution for this problem. Um, I would say maybe some of the other MLs. Um, I don't know that OCaml has a particularly good like solution to this problem. It, not to poop on other languages here, but <laughs> there definitely historically there hasn't been a good solution for. I have my type, and that's nice, and I have some unstructured kind of arbitrary data. I need to get it into a valid value of my type or kind of get like a maybe style you know this wasn't possible okay so do we ha- what's our, what's our um final final thoughts here so when do we use what what would be the the selling point for a dynamic language
2: what I'm getting from this
0: is they should probably go somewhere else if they want to really hear
2: the selling points for dynamic language. <laughs> I <see. laughs> As we yeah. have three, what, like... What do you mean? Well, we have no these... bias here.
0: <laughs> You're saying you don't ask the Static Programming Coalition for their advice on <laughs> dynamic programming languages? That's yeah, so weird. Yeah, that's,
2: that, that's, uh, that's what I've taken from this cast. Is, uh,
0: <laughs> okay, well, to, to be fair, we can say that static languages let you get started very quickly. You don't have to do a particular lot of planning. They're very good in the context of, I just want to do this thing. I just want to I evaluate this function and see what happens. Yeah. Did I say static? Yes. Okay. Ignore everything I've said. And do the <laughs> uh, it's It's worth
3: pointing out that the three of us here that's worked on both of them, both static and dynamic, have gone from dynamic to static, yeah. and we're staying in static so far.
0: That is true. I was once a hardcore Rubyist. And I'm not going back, like, <laughs> e- whether even like to a dynamic list, I tried Lisp as well, like, Oh, okay, I like dynamic, I'll, I'll go Lisp. And uh, after tasting the static language, a good static language, um, you know, not like a Java type thing. Um, it's pretty tough to go back. Yeah, I really miss compiler tooling when I don't have it. It's, yeah. it's super it's- scary. I feel lazy, actually, like, I don't I can't. Think about all these things in my head. Yeah. Like, you want me to keep track of the types? No. the The red squiggly line should come up and say, "Hey, dummy! You you're passing a foo to a bar." That doesn't work. It was very difficult for me to make the as as someone that did that for a long time. I remember um, way back when
2: Logan and maybe you too were getting into Ruby. Uh, he kind of introduced it to me, and I it it really bothered me. It was very difficult for me to make the make the change and do any programming in a dynamic language.
0: Um, so I feel vindicated 10 years later now. <laughs> you were right all Logan, along. I told you so. <laughs> but, but on the plus side, Logan's example of, hey, I just want to do this thing in Emacs. Like, I just want to take this line of code and paste it into my Emacs buffer and have it execute and do something. That might be quite a bit more difficult. Like, you don't see a lot of static scripting languages, right? They tend to be dynamic. So the, the ability to run code sort of with less context without having to get a bunch of imports and bring them in instead you're just saying hey there's a thing it should have a function that works with it name this try to make that happen that seems there's certain contexts where that does seem like a valuable thing um like would you want your excel macro not macros but the excel um you know formulas language to be static would that be better you know like there's some places where i'm like i don't know that i want static here even though i love static languages in the in the broad case um um, and Claudia brought up Repl too. Like it, it feels like for those real small little times when you just want to do something little, that it so its dynamicism isn't necessarily bad. Sure. The problem comes when we scale up. When it gets big and big and hairy, and it's tens of thousands of lines long, and you need to make a change, and you have no good way to know that you didn't break something somewhere else. That feels really scary. Yeah. Which is you know why we have testing, a culture of testing, right?
1: One sad thing about uh, that is that I was hoping in gradual typing. I was looking for, uh, waiting for the results from type closure quite uh, with expectations, but it didn't quite pan out in the end. It turns out that if you don't always use a type system, then some pieces of your code don't have guarantees, and it's hard to have guarantees when some parts of your code are not cooperating.
0: Right. It's, it's sort of the same way you, you would have in flow, right? In JavaScript, you, you have to almost treat the parts of the code that are not statically typed as if they're another language and almost have like an FFI boundary that you're like, okay, within this, I'm good. But that other stuff that's not statically yeah, I, typed. Yeah, I
3: find like, when you run into problems with, oh, I had some assumptions from flow in this part. It's like, okay, well, if those assumptions have failed, because of the dynamic nature of the language, I need to go in and start hitting that part with flow now. And sometimes it can be kind of tricky on a legacy code base because now you're touching way more that's within the scope of your change. But it always winds up being for the better. Extending the flow out more, like
0: bringing more of it under a static type system. Right. But sometimes it's tricky of like it has a ripple effect and it starts hitting a bunch mm-hmm. of other things. And- so as an alternative to that, you could say, okay, here's a type coming in, coming in from this sort of untyped area. Um, I'm just going to like put a strong guarantee on it right here, a check of some right. sort, and then know that after that, okay, now we're okay. So it's almost like FFI, like I was saying, it's almost like foreign data that you're validating before it comes into your system. Um, I I know that um, typed racket is kind of popular. Yeah, Um, People kind of often talk about that. I'd love to find out from someone who has experience with typed racket, how that actually works out in practice when you're combining a a typed module with like an untyped module. Um, But I I agree with you. My experience has been the same. If you don't have typing everywhere, you kind of lose a lot of its value. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way about purity. You write your own pure functions and that's great, except that you run into one function that's not pure and you can't rely on every function being pure. And now you have to start thinking about on a function by function basis. Hmm. Is this one pure? Can I combine it with the other ones? Uh, Versus if everything's pure, you just don't ever worry about it. It's like the balls that you're juggling, the seven plus or minus two. Like if it can't ever happen, it can never wind its way into your, you know, things that you're having to to keep going. Mm. Yeah. So that that's a benefit for going all the way into you know what, not mixing your paradigms, basically. All right. What can we say for static that we like? Everything else? Just we, we the can. whole we podcast? It, See the podcast. Like. Just the so we'll yes. last minutes. Yes. Uh, we're, we're all in favor. Yes. Um, it does come with a cost. And I think it is very much worth pointing out that it will feel like you're moving slower initially. There will be this perception of, hmm, this feels like a lot of work. And it's true. It is a lot of work. It's all the work that you were going to do anyways slowly by debugging runtime exceptions. But that's the same argument that was made for test-driven development. That's a good point. We're just going back and putting in
3: unit tests in the first place. It's like, oh, well, now I've got to spend more time writing more code that goes and make sure that my code did the, what it says it does.
0: Right. So type, um, types, strong static types are the ultimate TDD. Right. And in fact, it's funny because uh, Edwin Brady has a book about type-driven development in Idris which is pretty fantastic if you're uh, if you're feeling comfortable with going tackling something like Idris it's not actually that scary uh, but people read that TDD and it's type driven development and it's kind of the ultimate test driven development in a way um, it, it covers so many so much of the same space and that's definitely been my experience my uh, feelings of fear over refactoring a code base um, with strong types feels better than when I have a dynamic code base with lots of unit tests like the the types with no union tests feels better than the dynamic with uh with no types Mm. it's been my experience all right thanks everyone for joining us thank you thank you
2: thank you i'll see you all on slack